You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, bringing you everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest treatments and potential insights into the causes for mental illness. All of that with the goal of reducing the stigma of having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment, as well as better informing general public about mental health issues and bringing you that without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. And welcome to this interesting edition of Psychiatry Today, uh, pre-recorded for initial airing on Wednesday, November 9th, 2016, Interesting mental health-wise from a couple of different points of view. Uh, For one thing, we turn the clocks back uh, Sunday morning over this past weekend, uh, ending daylight savings time, much to the consternation of those who suffer from seasonal affective disorder, and also even to those who don't but simply uh, just are not happy with the days being shorter And also, interesting for the mental health aspects, uh, that those listening to this podcast uh, will be doing so right after we have a new president-elect. And this election, with its very polarizing and negative views about both candidates, has certainly had more than its share of attention as far as the mental health aspects. Um, There have been articles written about people being stressed by the election um, and by the coverage in the news media about the election, and this is not something that you typically see happening. Uh, So going to find a way to touch on both of these issues during tonight's podcast. Uh, First, A research study found that sunshine matters a lot to mental health. Temperature, pollution, rain, not so much. Uh, This study comes to us from Brigham Young University. Now, of course, we're well aware that sunshine plays a major role in mental health. Uh, Sunlight is an antidepressant. Um, Seasonal affective disorder has been an illness described and characterized many decades ago in which people feel well during the spring and summer, but during the fall and winter when the days are shorter, specifically when there is less time that there is sunshine, uh, people get depressed, uh, feel unmotivated, fatigued, unfocused, eat more, especially simple carbohydrates, and basically check out of life, more or less. Think of a hibernating animal. Uh, The analogies are quite 
striking. So this study may not have much that's new to tell us, but apparently they had some researchers collaborate. Uh, one who was uh, in the Brigham Young University Counseling and Psychological Services, uh, another who was a physics professor who could track things like weather patterns and uh, pollution and temperature and things like that, and finally a statistics professor to analyze all the data. And so, you know, they found out that, yes, sunshine matters a lot, and uh, although it's not a new idea, in it comes to, when it comes to mental and emotional health, the amount of time between sunrise and sunset is key. And we just decreased that uh, this past weekend by getting out of daylight savings time. Your day might be filled with irritatingly hot temperatures, as we've had quite a warm fall so far, especially here in Georgia, although that seems to be moderating. There may be thick air pollution, and there may even be pockets of rain clouds, although not here where, again, we have drought in Georgia. But that's not necessarily what's going to get you down. If you're able to soak up enough sun, your level of emotional distress should remain stable. Take away that sun time, though, and your distress can spike. This applies to the clinical population at large, not only to people diagnosed with seasonal affective disorder. In other words, it may affect people with seasonal affective disorder uh, more strikingly, uh, more severely, but even those of us who don't have that certainly are affected by the shorter time period between sunrise and sunset. On a rainy day or a more polluted day, people assume that they'd have more distress. But the researchers didn't find that in their study. Although I have to tell you just anecdotally from my own experience and my own practice, in years past, typically during the fall and winter, when we've had stretches of days where there's been no sun and just clouds and rain and cold day after day, people do report that their mood starts to suffer, even if they don't normally have these uh, typical seasonal fluctuations. These BYU researchers looked at factors like solar irradiance, or the amount of sunlight that actually hits the ground. They tried to take into account cloudy days, rainy days, pollution, but those factors simply washed out, no pun. The one thing that was really significant was the amount of time between sunrise and sunset. And they recommended that therapists should be aware that winter months will be a time of high demand for their services. With fewer sun time hours, clients will be particularly vulnerable to emotional distress. Preventative measures should be implemented on a case-by-case basis. The study was published in the Journal of Affective Disorders. Well, they didn't enumerate what the preventative measures might be in the article about the research study, uh, but certainly it's well known 
that what will help prevent symptoms of seasonal affective disorder is if it does happen to be sunny in the morning, even if it's cold, get out there and enjoy the sun. Even if you have to bundle up, that will go a long way to alleviating the fall and winter doldrums. But make sure you do it early enough in the morning. And also, there are light boxes for people who suffer from seasonal affective disorder. And don't buy something in Lowe's or Home Depot. Uh, that's not going to get the job done. It has to be a light box that's specifically designed and treated, uh, designed uh, and manufactured rather, to treat seasonal affective disorder. And you sit in front of the light box for a half hour or 45 minutes uh, every morning. You don't have to be staring into it. In fact, you needn't and shouldn't stare right into it as long as it's shining on you while you're eating your breakfast or reading your morning paper or what have you. That's good enough. Getting regular exercise helps with your mood year-round, uh, but especially it's important to, to do that to counteract the depression from shorter periods of sunlight in the fall and winter. And it will also, uh, the regular exercise will also curb those excess carb cravings that seasonal affective disorder sufferers are prone to. Now, there were <clears throat> several studies have attempted to look at the weather's effect on mood with mixed results. And the BYU researchers cited four reasons why they feel their study is an improvement on previous research. Uh, the study analyzed several meteorological variables, including wind chill, rainfall, solar irradiance, wind speed, temperature, and more. The weather data could be analyzed down to the minute in the exact area where the clients lived. The study focused on a clinical population, uh, again, those who were using the counseling services at BYU, instead of a general population, and the study used a mental health treatment outcome measure to examine several aspects of psychological distress rather than relying on either online diaries or rates of suicide attempts. The weather data came from BYU's physics and astronomy weather station, and the pollution data came from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Mental and emotional health data came from BYU's Counseling and Psychological Services Center. Okay, so remember what you can do yourself. Um, if it's sunny in the morning, get out there and get some of it. Or at the very least, throw open the shades, blinds, and curtains on those sunny mornings, even if it's cold. Take advantage of the light. And if you're interested in purchasing a light box because you are a regular seasonal affective disorder sufferer. That is, every fall and winter your mood goes down and it goes right back up again every spring and summer. Then let me suggest to you two different websites where you can investigate purchasing uh, a light box that's legitimately used to treat seasonal affective disorder. Again, you are not going to find this in your uh, hardware or home goods store. Uh, sunbox.com sunbox.com is one place and another one is northernlighttechnologies.com and that's just those words strung together northernlighttechnologies.com these are two 
websites that are legitimate sources for uh, the purchase of a light box uh, that, again, is specifically designed and properly and adequately equipped uh, to treat seasonal affective disorder. Um, you can certainly check out both websites, see their prices, and look into it for yourself. Uh, and also, I might add that depending on your health insurance company, if your doctor writes a letter or some sort of um, order or justification uh, to purchase it as a health issue, you might even get some reimbursement from your health insurance company for the purchase of the light box. All right, we're going to take uh, our first commercial break right about now. And when we come back, I said there were two mental health-related stories that were pertinent since we last got together. One we've touched on already, that turning the clocks back. The next is the election. So we'll have that and more mental health-related news when we come back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week as we explore all aspects of home and family defense as we strive to defend the ones we love in an ever-changing and volatile world. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. And as I was saying before, the election was causing a great deal of anxiety and emotional distress, uh, such that there were even articles written about how therapists were noticing the increased level of distress in their clients because of the uh, election 
it's almost completely unprecedented how both of the candidates, the major candidates anyway, for the presidential election, which just recently took place, elicited such negative views across the board, uh, even from uh, those who consider themselves supporters of their own parties. And they're uh, accused of a lot of lying and misdeeds, and these lies and misdeeds have been parsed in, in great detail and cataloged and debated in uh, on a daily basis, on an hourly basis even. Uh, so when I saw this article about how lying takes our brains down a slippery slope, I thought, wow, how appropriate. Uh, we just uh, have a new president-elect, um, and nobody trusted anything um, either one of them said, uh, depending on what side you were on. So how appropriate to discuss this. Now, you notice I haven't said the, the name of either one of them, nor their party, and I'm not going to. It doesn't really matter. No matter what side of the aisle you're on, um, there's such strongly negative and polarizing feelings about the other. Um, I think it's applicable, uh, again, to no matter what party affiliation you have or uh, which candidate you favor. So <clears throat> telling small lies desensitizes our brains to the associated negative emotions and may encourage us to tell bigger lies in the future. Uh, this revealed by new research from University College in London. The research was published in the journal Nature Neuroscience, and it provides the first empirical evidence that self-serving lies, such as those told by politicians, gradually escalate, and it reveals how this happens in our brains. The research team scanned volunteers' brains while they took part in tasks where they could lie for personal gain. Hmm, again, sounds like politicians, right? They found that the amygdala, a small part of the brain associated with emotion, was most active when people first lied for personal gain. The amygdala's response to lying declined with every lie, while the magnitude of the lies escalated. Crucially, the researchers found that larger drops in this activity in the amygdala predicted bigger lies in the future. Now this, to me, is fascinating if you're studying the anatomy of the brain and how it relates to human thought and emotion and behavior because of what we already know about the amygdala. The amygdala is more or less our fear center of the brain, and along with other regions like the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus, it helps assign a sort of emotional value or valence to whatever the fearful stimuli might be. So when you first start telling a little lie, the amygdala gets very active. There's that a uh, pang of emotion that, ooh, I told a lie. But as you keep telling more and more lies, even if they get bigger, this activity slows down. Wow. So just on the basis of these, this simple brain scan and looking at this structure in the brain, the researchers are able to show that, yeah, when if you start lying, that may arouse a little bit of emotion, a little bit of guilt there, if you will. But the more you lie 
the easier it becomes. Um, the senior author said, when we lie for personal gain, our amygdala produces a negative feeling that limits the extent to which we are prepared to lie. However, this response fades as we continue to lie. And the more it falls, the bigger our lies become. This may lead to a slippery slope where small acts of dishonesty escalate into more significant lies. Uh, again, I cannot help but point out the irony of how easily this applies uh, to politicians, including the presidential candidates. The study included 80 volunteers who took part in a team estimation task that involved guessing the number of pennies in a jar and sending their estimates to unseen partners using a computer. This took place in several different scenarios. In the baseline scenario, participants were told that aiming for the most accurate estimate would benefit them and their partner. In various other scenarios, over or underestimating the amount would either benefit them at their partner's expense, benefit both of them, benefit their partner at their own expense, or only benefit one of them with no effect on the other. When overestimating the amount would benefit the volunteer at their partner's expense, people started by slightly exaggerating their estimates, which elicited strong amygdala responses. Their exaggerations escalated as the experiment went on, while their amygdala responses declined. Okay, now I'll grant you a very artificial, contrived laboratory setting uh, to create the conditions by which you can try to judge what might happen in the real world. Quite a far cry from what does, but, you know, since you're not likely to be able to get uh, the average person to just randomly walk into your fMRI scanner to see what happens to their amygdala when they're lying. You have to do something to test your hypothesis. So that's what they did. Now, it is likely that the brain's blunted response to repeated acts of dishonesty reflects a reduced emotional response to these acts. This is in line with suggestions that our amygdala signals aversion to acts that we consider wrong or immoral. They only tested dishonesty in this experiment, but the same principle may also apply to escalations in other actions, such as risk-taking or violent behavior. And <clears throat> this is a very interesting look at the brain's response to repeated and increasing acts of dishonesty. Of course, the scientists pointed out that future work would be needed to tease out more precisely whether these acts of dishonesty are indeed linked to a blunted emotional response and whether escalations in other types of behavior would have the same effect. But again, apart from the admitted laboratory contrivance, it makes inherent sense that when you lie, it becomes easier to do so. Uh, and then we have these terms uh, that we're familiar with, habitual liar, pathological liar, 
like anything else. The more you do it, the easier it becomes, and you become desensitized to the strong emotion of uh, fear or guilt uh, that you may suffer initially. And uh, this is how it becomes easier to lie and to tell bigger ones. Well, there you go. Uh, so no matter who it was that is our new president-elect, um, the fact that the campaign is over and the election is done is not going to mean the end of scrutiny of everything whoever won the election says and does as far as seeing. Uh, are they being honest and forthright and straightforward with the American people, or are they continuing to lie as they were accused of throughout the campaign? We will see. Well, next up on Psychiatry Today, uh, I have a couple of very important articles um, related to the issue of uh, wider legalization of marijuana in the United States. Um, in addition to the presidential and other elections <clears throat> that took place this past Tuesday, uh, several states held votes to uh, look at uh, legalization of medical marijuana or recreational marijuana use. And so uh, it is also timely to discuss this issue. And I fully admit to being outside the majority view on this issue, a majority of American people uh, are in favor of the legalization of personal use of marijuana. I think the last estimate was 57% of the U.S. population are in favor of that. I, for one, am not one of those. Uh, to me, the damage that marijuana can do to the brain is uh, far too great, and it should still be uh, illegal, and uh, there should not be such a casual and easygoing attitude toward uh, recreational use of it. Um, and I'm going to continue to hold that point of view, even though it's not the mainstream or the popular one, much to my consternation. Well, so the first of the two articles that we're going to go over is that there have been a spate of drugged driving deaths that is causing alarm among United States regulators, and the wider legalization of marijuana is considered a factor. And the article shows um, a graph from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration uh, showing the overall fatal crashes and the number of drug-related crashes uh, from 1993, a total of 1,716 drug-related crashes, have a total of 35,780 crashes altogether. And in 2015, uh, <clears throat> the number of total crashes went down to 32,166, but the drug-related uh, crashes are up to 6,612. So this is an increasingly severe problem. The percentage of traffic deaths in which at least one driver tested positive for drugs has nearly doubled over a decade, um, raising alarms as five states were set to vote on legalization of marijuana. 
And uh, we'll actually take a, another commercial break here. We come back, we'll go over the rest of this data and its implications and have another article for you about the impact of legalization of pot. That and more mental health-related news when we come back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. And we're talking now about the alarmingly increasing rate of drugged driving deaths as opposed to drunk driving deaths in the context of increasing efforts to legalize the use of marijuana. Amid a disquieting increase in overall U.S. traffic fatalities, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has tracked an upswing in the percentage of drivers testing positive for illegal drugs and prescription medications, according to federal data and interviews with leaders in the field. The increase corresponds with the movement to legalize marijuana, troubling experts who readily acknowledge that the effects of pot use on drivers remain poorly understood. Recreational marijuana use is now legal in Colorado, Washington State, Oregon, Alaska, and the District of Columbia, even as it remains outlawed on a federal level. Five states, Arizona, California, Maine, Massachusetts, and Nevada voted on legalization this past Tuesday. It's very probable that Colorado's move to legalize recreational marijuana 
has caused an increase in fatal crashes, according to Glenn Davis, Colorado's highway safety manager. In 2015, 21% of the 31,166 fatal crashes in the United States involved at least one driver who tested positive for drugs after the incident, up from 12% in 2005, according to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Now, the rate rose in 14 of the last 15 years, falling for the first time last year. It was down less than one percentage point compared with 2014. Drugs is emerging as a higher number, that is a percentage of the effects of the crashes, according to Mark Rosekind, administrator of the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. A separate federal study of 11,000 weekend and nighttime drivers found 15.1% tested positive for illegal drugs in 2013 and 2014, up from 12.4% in 2007. Marijuana represented the largest increase as 12.6% tested positive in 2013 and 2014, up from 8.6% in 2007. In 2015, 21% of the 31,166 fatal crashes in the U.S. involved at least one driver who tested positive for drugs after the incident. Researchers caution that the connection between drugs and deadly crashes is not as significant as the effect of drunken driving, which is responsible for more than 30% of road fatalities. Experts also note that available data is not comprehensive, and some drugs, including certain over-the-counter medications, have no effect on the driver. Many drivers who get high and then get behind the wheel are subject to arrest for driving under the influence, just as those who drink and drive. One victim, according to prosecutors, was David Agio of California. He was killed on March the 8th, 2014, when Rodolfo Alberto Contreras, who was high on marijuana, ran a red light at nearly 80 miles per hour crossed the center divider, and demolished Agio's Ford Explorer. Contreras, in June, became the first drugged driver in California to be convicted of second-degree murder. According to California prosecutors, his response at the scene of the crime when confronted about the incident was, quote, I want my weed, unquote. He was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. Auto safety experts are particularly concerned about a spike in drugged driving in states that have legalized recreational marijuana, such as Colorado, where voters approved it in 2014. The nation's opioid epidemic could also be a contributing factor. Uh, Opioids are narcotic painkillers, uh, uh, derived ultimately the parent uh, drug being opium, it's why I call opiates or 
opioids. In 2015, 12.4% of fatal crashes in Colorado involved a driver who tested positive for cannabis alone, up from 8.1% in 2013, according to the Colorado Department of Transportation reports. The number of drivers involved in fatal crashes who tested positive for any drug hit a record 18.6% in Colorado in 2015, up from a low of 12.3% in 2012. Naturally, marijuana proponents dispute the suggestion that pot use is killing more people on the road. Jolene Foreman, staff attorney at the Drug Policy Alliance, which supports marijuana legalization, cautioned against drawing conclusions on the effect of marijuana legalization on drivers. She said, We're interested in pursuing policies that advance what is empirically shown rather than knee-jerk fear-based policies. It's too soon to say that it's had a positive or negative effect, but preliminary data look very promising. It looks like marijuana legalization has not led to road safety concerns. Sorry, I don't see the Colorado data the same way. Complicating matters is that research on the effects of drugged driving is scarce, leaving road safety experts with little understanding of the full ramifications. For starters, many drivers involved in fatal crashes aren't tested for drugs. What's more, just because drivers have drugs in their system doesn't mean they are impaired. Marijuana is noticeable in the bloodstream for weeks but its strongest effects dissipate after a few hours. In addition, there's no generally accepted field sobriety test for officers to conduct, and there's no standard level of impairment for marijuana. In contrast, all states punish drivers for blood alcohol concentration at or above 0.08% according to the Governor's Highway Safety Association. But a study released in June by the University of Iowa's National Advanced Driving Simulator, or NADS, concluded that drivers with blood concentration of 13.1 micrograms per per liter of the main active ingredient in marijuana, tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC for short, showed increased weaving that was similar to those with a 0.08 blood alcohol level. As we see more people drive on the road with different controlled substances, whether they be illicit or prescription drugs, the risk is increasing, said Tim Brown, associate research scientist at the National Advanced Driving Simulator, anyone who's driving dangerously because they're high can be flagged by officers who are looking for drunken drivers, according to J.T. Griffin, Chief Government Affairs Officer for Mothers Against Drunk Driving, an organization which last year updated its mission statement to target drugged driving. Well, I'd have to say I think uh, 
while marijuana is not the only substance that is leading to an increased problem with drugged driving, uh, certainly the increasing legalization of it is going to contribute to these statistics. And so if indeed this past election day voters in Arizona, California, Maine, Massachusetts, and Nevada approved legalization of marijuana, um, they had better be prepared for uh, an increase in crashes, as has been seen in Colorado, and hopefully law enforcement will have some idea of what to do to uh, account for this expected increase in drugged driving. And to follow up on that article, um, <clears throat> there was an editorial in a recent issue of the Wall Street Journal that I want to share with you. Um, and it is called, uh, the name of the editorial, the title is A Brave New Weed. But the point of it is looking at the costs of marijuana legalization. Uh, proponents of it were saying that uh, there would be economic benefits, that, uh, you know, there would be uh, tax benefits. Well, that hasn't turned out to be the case, and that's the point of this editorial, which I'll now read uh, for you. Marijuana is now legal in 25 states for medicinal purposes and in four for recreational use. And as we said earlier, votes in another five have a chance, had a chance uh, this past Tuesday to legalize the retail consumption of pot. But the evidence rolling in from these real-time experiments should give voters pause to consider the consequences. In 2012, Colorado and Washington voters legalized recreational pot, followed by Alaska and Oregon two years later. And the initiatives that were voted on this past Tuesday in California, Arizona, Nevada, Maine, and Massachusetts would allow businesses to sell and market pot to adults age 21 and older. Adults could possess up to one ounce more in Maine and grow six marijuana plants. Public consumption would remain prohibited, as would driving under the influence. Marijuana would be taxed at rates from 3.75% in Massachusetts to 15% in the western states, which would license and regulate retailers. All right, well, we're going to be running up against a commercial break, so I'll pause here. We'll continue uh, going over the editorial about this from the Wall Street Journal. When we get back from that, and we'll have other mental health-related news. For you, so please join me after this break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. 
This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week for a full hour of all the best and latest information on how you can get the skills and equipment you need to protect the ones that you love. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott and your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And we are talking about an editorial that appeared in the Wall Street Journal recently about the costs of marijuana legalization being a lot higher than were advertised by proponents of it. Marijuana is a Schedule One drug under the Federal Controlled Substances Act of 1970, which prohibits states from regulating possession, use, and distribution and sale of narcotics. However, the Justice Department in 2013 announced it wouldn't enforce the law in states that legalize pot. Justice also promised to monitor and document the outcomes, which predictably it has not done. But someone should because evidence from Colorado and Washington, compiled by the nonprofit Smart Approaches to Marijuana, suggests that legalization isn't achieving what supporters promised. One problem is that legalization and celebrity glamorization have removed any social stigma from pot, and it is now ubiquitous. Minors can get pot as easily as a six-pack. Since 2011, marijuana consumption among youth rose by 9.5% in Colorado and 3.2% in Washington, even as it dropped 2.2% nationwide. The Denver Post reports that a disproportionate share of marijuana businesses are in low-income and minority communities. Many resemble candy stores with lollipops, gummy bears, and brownies loaded with marijuana's active ingredient, THC. The science of how THC affects young minds is still evolving. However, studies have shown that pot use during adolescence can shave off several IQ points and increase the risk for schizophrenic breaks. I can definitely validate what the author is saying there and... Uh, those of you who have been regular listeners to this podcast recall that I uh, discuss those articles uh, with you. One in six kids who try the drug will become addicted, a higher rate than for alcohol. 
Pot today is six times more potent than 30 years ago, so it's easier to get hooked and high. Employers have also reported having a harder time finding workers who pass drug tests. Positive workplace drug tests for marijuana in Colorado have increased 178% since 2012. The construction company GE Johnson says it is recruiting construction workers from other states because it can't find enough in Colorado to pass a drug test. Honest legalizers admitted that these social costs might increase, but said they'd be offset by fewer arrests and lower law enforcement costs. Yet arrests of black and Hispanic youth in Colorado for pot-related offenses have soared 58% and 29% respectively, while falling 8% for whites. The share of pot-related traffic deaths has roughly doubled in Washington and increased by a third in Colorado since legalization. And in the Centennial State, pot is now involved in more than one of five traffic fatalities. Calls to poison control for overdoses have jumped 108% in Colorado and 68% in Washington since 2012. Colorado Attorney General Cynthia Kaufman has said that criminals are still selling on the black market, in part because state taxes make legal marijuana pricier than on the street. Drug cartels have moved to grow marijuana in the states or have switched to trafficking in more profitable drugs like heroin. One irony is that a big pot industry is developing even as tobacco smokers are increasingly ostracized. The ArcView Group projects that the pot market could triple over four years to $22 billion. Pot retailers aren't supposed to market specifically to kids, though they can still advertise on the radio or TV during, say, a college football game. Whereas tobacco companies have been prohibited from advertising on TV since 1971. The legalization movement is backed by the likes of George Soros and Napster co-founder Sean Parker. And this year they are vastly outspending opponents. No wonder U.S. support for legalizing marijuana has increased to 57% from 32% a decade ago according to the Pew Research Center. And, of course, it's déclassé to resist this cultural imperative, and maybe voters think the right to get high when you want is worth the social and health costs of millions of more stoners. Then again, since four states have volunteered to be guinea pigs, maybe other states should wait and see if these negative trends continue. All right, well, you can argue whether or not the person who wrote that editorial was uh, being somewhat hyperbolic at times. In my opinion, I thought what they had to say was very fair and backed up by facts and research, even though it's obvious what their bias is. Um, 
You know, I really do think that what's gone on in the four states that have approved recreational use and and however many of the five who had it on the ballot this, this past Tuesday also have approved it is a, a massive uh, social science experiment, um, but it's playing with people's lives. And even if you don't look at the most dire consequences as far as deaths from uh, accidental overdose or poisonings or uh, drugged driving crashes, uh, the less obvious consequences in terms of impaired learning and functioning, uh, damage that can be done to the brain, the heart, the lungs, um, this is exceedingly a bad idea and can only hope that someday the negative consequences will be so obvious and so egregious that something will have to be done to dial back uh, this liberalization of marijuana laws. All right, well, we're going to change gears now and look at another mental health issue. You remember I've talked to you in the past about these brain training games, and they don't really do what they're supposed to as far as helping you uh, remember better and preserve your memory. Well, uh, a new study came out that says spending enough time playing brain training games, and you'll get pretty good at the games, but not necessarily better at anything else. And this is the, an extensive review concluded that in the journal Psychological Science and the Public Interest. Psychologists scoured the scientific literature for studies held up by brain training proponents as evidence that the technique works, and they found the research wanting. The tools enhanced performance on the tasks they tested Spend enough time matching colored cards or memorizing strings of letters, and you'll get really good at that. But there's little evidence that the training enhances performance on unrelated tasks or everyday cognitive performance. And also, the studies had major problems with their design or analysis that made it impossible to draw any general conclusions. Um, be nice if you could play some games and have it radically change your cognitive abilities, but the studies don't show that on objectively measured real-world outcomes. These brain training programs have been controversial for a long time. In the mid-2000s, experiments suggested astonishing cognitive improvements from these simple training game interventions. A high-profile study in the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences in 2008 found that four weeks of brain training dramatically improved young adults' ability to solve problems they hadn't accounted before. This big claim that the techniques could produce vertical transfer of cognitive skills, in other words, that playing games would boost the brain's ability to do more sophisticated tasks, but the work could not be replicated. In 2014, uh, a group of scientists questioned whether there was any evidence that the games actually improve cognitive function. Um, and this has been argued back and forth with uh, open letters from different scientific groups arguing that the, the games do work or not, um, reviewing studies and coming up with different conclusions. So uh, to def definitively prove that the brain training games work, studies would have to have a good control group, one that was assigned to a comparable task to brain training, to prove that it was the technique that led to the improvements and have a large number of participants to show the results wouldn't uh, be a fluke 
and um, also to account for expectations and biases, like a placebo effect, for example. But uh, <clears throat> the latest studies show that none of the trials done so far met these standards. And again, um, only helped you get better at the task, not any generalized improvements. And uh, so, and, and the scientists argued back and forth that those who reviewed and came up with the conclusions that the games don't work were subject to biases. Uh, and, uh, you know, but this uh, is also in the background of the Federal Trade Commission cracking down on those who promote the games. For example, in January, the FTC announced that the creators of the brain training game Lumosity would have to pay $2 million in damages to settle charges of deceptive advertising. The company has since scaled back its claims. Instead of promoting the game as a way to get smarter, the Lumosity website describes it simply as designed by scientists to challenge core cognitive abilities. So the bottom line is that training games may someday prove to boost the brain, but they haven't yet. All right, now having said that, should you stop playing the brain training games, Lumosity or uh, the others that are out there? No, of course not. They certainly can't do any harm. There's just not any hard scientific proof yet anyway that they help. So what is their hard scientific proof that helps maintain your brain health and good memory and thinking and cognition? Exercise and social activity. So if you exercise regularly and you maintain regular social activity, you can take it to the bank. Those things will keep your mind sharper for longer. And if you want to play the games, you can do it too. All right, well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. Hope you found the information that I enjoyed bringing to you interesting and informative. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week till the next time we meet. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.